It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because This Might Get Uncomfortable starts right now with Jason Robel and Whitney Lauritsen. Dear listener, you may know that we have a course called Wellness Warrior Training. We have mentioned it many times here on This Might Get Uncomfortable. It's one of our flagship programs along with the Consistency Code. And we have a new round that we kicked off at the beginning of 2021. And Whitney and myself were digging through some of the course content and the feedback and just wanted to look at some pain points. It's always interesting when we get a new round of students and people in the community just to see what people are bringing up, what their concerns are, what their triumphs are, their successes, their perceived failures. It's really, really an interesting thing to go through because we do have a lot of content and we do have a lot of feedback, thankfully, that we receive from our courses. And if you are interested in digging into those resources and those courses, you can visit our website. It's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. Our brand is Wellevator. And you'll find all of those great resources there on the homepage. But in digging in, Whitney, I found some really interesting things. There seems to be consistent themes that pop up, which is not a surprise because I think that one of my core philosophies, I think as as human beings, if we really just scratch a little bit under the surface, it seems to me that we all have really similar hopes, dreams, fears, concerns, ways that we hold each other back, ourselves back. It just seems that there's some consistency that pops up when we start to look at the feedback that comes through from these courses. So in digging in, I found, how many here? About six or seven pretty consistent things. Now, of course, they're phrased a little bit differently, but when I'm scanning through and doing these kind of metric assessments, you see certain keywords start to pop up and go, ah, this is interesting. People are really bringing this up a lot. So in today's episode, Whitney and I are going to talk about these things and dig in a little bit because for you, dear listener, this might be something that resonates with you as well. As we dig through these assessments, dozens and dozens and dozens of them, it starts to feel almost like not a survey. It's definitely not a survey, but when you look at survey statistics and see like 50% of respondents found that they were struggling with X or Y, it kind of starts to have that feel where you see these patterns emerge. So the first thing, Whitney, in this list that really jumped out at me, I think I want to read the list and then you and I can kind of dive in deep to each one. The first thing that really jumped out at me was how many people brought up the concept of self-sabotage. Really, really interesting. They didn't necessarily get into so many specifics, although one thing did come up around self-sabotage, which we'll talk about more, which was they know they need to do better, but they're not doing better. And so they're perceiving that as sabotaging themselves, which I thought was really fascinating. Next thing that popped up was sort of the double-edged sword of gratitude and guilt, the GGs, gratitude and guilt about doing well in their lives right now, whether they're doing well financially, doing well in the stock market, doing well at their jobs. Maybe they've just been employed throughout the entire pandemic. But this sort of seesaw between feeling really, really grateful for that abundance and employment, and then also feeling guilty because they know how many people are suffering. I thought that was really fascinating. 
a lot of people brought up fear of failure about starting something new, a new job or taking a chance on their dream or starting a business or pivoting into something brand new because what they've been doing during the pandemic isn't working anymore and they're afraid of failing. The next thing that got popped out to me was the distractions by social media, which is really not a surprise. It's something that you and I have discussed at length here on the podcast in many different episodes, the myriad dimensions of our interactions with social media as we move forward as a human species. So people using the word distractions and wanting to get new tools to not be so distracted. Another big one that came up a ton, people want to move, they want to be outside and they want to exercise more. So I saw like, I want to move, I want to be outdoors and be interacting with nature and I want to have more consistency with my exercise regimen. This is something too, this next one, Whitney, that piggybacks on a recent episode where you talked a lot about your non-alcoholic mocktails and your mixology on TikTok. This was interesting. A lot of people brought up that they want to maintain their sobriety and drink less alcohol, which was really fascinating. And it piggybacks on one of the things, one of the resources we mentioned in that episode about, well, not sobriety, but drinking alcohol and our feelings about that. There was a study that came out that binge drinking is up during the pandemic and it's the majority is women. So to see that in our feedback from Wellness Warrior Training was really interesting. And then the last thing that really jumped out at me was wanting to eat less sugar and eat less processed food. It seems that people are really using sugar as a crutch and they related to the processed food, Whitney, we're talking about emotional eating and that seems to be what they reach for. So I think that's what, one, two, three, that's about seven things that really jumped out that I saw as a recurring theme. So which one do you feel like you want to dive into first? Because we got a lot to unpack here in this episode. Well, I think the, I mean, clearly I'm very interested in the sobriety side of it. And it's actually really reassuring to hear that people are interested in that. I've known that from TikTok, as I talked about in a previous episode that Jason mentioned, which we will link to in the show notes at wellevator.com. If you want to find that episode or any of the resources, plus the transcript of this one, that's available at W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. And sobriety is fascinating to me right now because I guess I associate the word sober with like very restrictive. And I wonder if this is how people feel about veganism when the truth is that there's kind of different levels of sobriety in terms of why people are doing it and for how long. And is it related to religion? Is it related to health? Is it related to addiction? Like all these different angles that you can look at it or like reasons for choosing that lifestyle. And it's really opened up my eyes. And so to see this in the context of wellness warrior training, which is so much about our well-being, I'm curious, Jason, how are people talking about sobriety? Do they want to drink less for health reasons? Are they getting specific about it? Or is it just kind of like, this is what I want to do with no explanation? A few comments were around health reasons. And it seemed that there were some comments about just feeling sort of using alcohol to deal with their emotions. There were a few of those that popped up, which I think, though, to piggyback on your comment, because I don't want to let it go about you wondering if people feel the same way about veganism, that it's too restrictive. I think that's really interesting that people can perceive a certain lifestyle because being sober absolutely is a lifestyle. We have an upcoming guest, our friend Rinda Laurel, who is a major advocate for sobriety and mental health. And I'm sure she's going to dive into more of the nuances of this lifestyle because you and I are not technically sober. 
you and I, Whitney, we've talked about we don't really drink that much, but we're not anti-alcohol. But I do think it's interesting you brought that up about people having potentially the same perception, not just around veganism, but maybe even around keto or maybe even around paleo or 80-10-10 or whatever particular diet or lifestyle might come up. And the idea of restrictiveness is interesting because, I mean, what does it bring up? A lack of freedom, a lack of choice, a fear of missing out? When you hear the word restriction or if you associate something with being too restrictive, on a deeper level, what does that bring up to you? Or maybe what feelings does it engender? I know that's a little bit of a tangent, but the idea of restriction to me feels sort of like shrinking and immobile and not able to like move the way I want to when I think about restricted. Well, it's interesting because in general, I don't fully believe in restriction, like unless it's really specific. I think that most of our ideas around restriction are not quite what it seems that they are, if that makes sense. Like again, sobriety, veganism, keto, on and on, like we look at those things immediately, start to acknowledge what we can't have. And I'm more of a glass half full perspective type of person. So I will see keto. I'm like, wow, this is great. Like, look at all these great foods I can have and look at how I feel. And I've actually been work, kind of working my way towards keto-ish. Just for context, I really tend to feel best when I'm eating lower carb foods. And some people get really scared about that. But the cool thing is, is because I'm making the decisions that feel right for my body. If I want to have a higher carb food, like a potato, I will have it. And I did that right before the podcast in all transparency. And that's fine. But what's neat about something like keto is that it's a choice and I can check in with myself and I can choose to perceive it as restrictive or not. Veganism is a little different because there's the whole ethical side. So of course it is also a choice, but it's not as casual as my take on keto, which is like, if I'm going to eat an animal product, it has a really big ripple effect versus if I eat a potato on the keto diet, like it's a ripple effect within myself. And that's also what's interesting about alcohol is that it's kind of in between the two, I suppose, where it has a ripple effect within yourself because there's a lot of health benefits to not drinking alcohol. And it could possibly have a ripple effect on other people because our behavior changes when we get drunk, depending on how much alcohol we consume, right? And so alcohol can have a really negative impact on someone's life if you're saying or doing harmful things, if you have an addiction that's causing harm to other people. So I think it's just such an interesting thing to learn more about. And then you know what else is really interesting, Jason, since I've continued down this path of making a lot of videos for TikTok about non-alcoholic options, I'm seeing all these conversations. And I, out of pure ignorance, I'm shocked at how many people are excited about non-alcoholic drinks. I posted a video and I'm actually like, I got like a butterfly excited feeling in my stomach as I said that sentence because a few days ago I posted a video. I had really low expectations for how it was going to do. Even though I knew that there was a lot of interest in non-alcoholic drinks on TikTok, I thought it's very possible that it was like a one-hit wonder type of thing <laughs> where like maybe nobody will come back like they're not really paying attention to what I'm doing, but I think I was wrong. 
I did another video about a bottle of non-alcoholic champagne or sparkling Chardonnay from this amazing company called No and Low. And I'm excited to share that the creators of that company, it's a retail website that specializes in non-alcoholic drinks. They're planning on being guests for our show. We have not booked them yet, but we're very close. (laughs) They just have to pick a date to be on our show. And I'm excited to bring them on to talk more about this because I just simply shared that they were sending me a bottle of champagne. I made a very simple like 15-second video on TikTok saying, hey, did you know that there's a non-alcoholic champagne? And people kind of lost their minds relative to my experience. Oh my gosh. Last I checked, it was on the border of hitting 100,000 views in just, I think, two days, two and a half days or something, which is really big for me. Previous to this non-alcohol experience, which I think I talked about in our other episode, but just to summarize here, with my TikTok videos, I would probably average between two to 500 views. And I had a few like more viral experiences. One of them was definitely viral. It has like almost 800,000 views. That's my just egg video. But aside from that, like maybe I'd get up to a thousand or a few thousand views, right? So getting a hundred thousand views is a big deal for me. And I think for most people, people every single day, Jason, and sometimes literally every single minute are leaving comments about how much they're excited to hear that there is a non-alcoholic champagne. Last I checked, there was over a thousand comments on that video and people tagging each other like, oh my God, we can finally have champagne at a picnic together. There was a ton of references to picnics, by the way, like (laughs) people having conversations with themselves in the comment sections about having picnics with this non-alcoholic champagne. And again, it's technically a sparkling Chardonnay and it's also similar to Prosecco, I've heard. I have not received it yet as of the time of this recording, but when this episode is out... I will have already received it. So if you're curious, you can come over to my TikTok. It's at Wit Lauritsen, W-H-I-T-L-A-U-R-I-T-S-E-N. We'll link to that in the show notes if you want to see the update on the champagne and any other non-alcoholic drinks if you're excited about this. And I promise this whole episode's not going to be about this. This is just <laughs> part of it and a long-winded uh, answer to you, Jason. But uh, this is really fascinating to me because I'm seeing how many people are like, oh my gosh, I feel included. And oh my gosh, I don't feel like I have to be restricted. And then a follow-up to that is often, why do you want to drink champagne without alcohol in it? What's the point? And here's the thing. And I think this ties back into your question, Jason, is there's two angles to this. Just because you don't want to drink alcohol doesn't mean that you don't like the taste or the experience of it. I mean, a champagne bottle is so beautiful. And it just has that elegance to the shape and to the wrapper and the cork and that experience of pulling off the cork and hearing the sounds and the smells of it. And I love the taste of champagne. And I recognize that like it's really the taste and the experience that I drink it for. I barely care about the alcohol levels. It's so rare that I'm like, I want to get buzzed or I want to get drunk. I'm doing it for that experience. And so I'm excited to share this with our listeners because maybe there's someone hearing this episode thinking like, oh my gosh, me too. And now I get the health benefits. The other cool thing about the champagne, which is I think it's called Naughty, 
N-O-U-G-H-T-Y. And again, I, I got it through No and Low and their website is drinknowandlow.com and that'll be in the show notes if you want to check them out. I'm working on getting like a discount code or something for them. So hang tight. But this drink, this sparkling Chardonnay, is not only non-alcoholic, Jason, but it's certified organic, certified vegan, and certified halal, which is really important to Muslims. So that means that they actually can drink a champagne within their own personal choices. I've also learned through the comment section on TikTok that some Muslims feel very uncomfortable having anything that resembles alcohol. And that's a whole nother conversation, but fascinating. Yeah, it's like you have stumbled into a whole community of people with hopes and concerns and preferences and joys that you didn't know existed. I mean, this is mind-blowing for me too. But it also, on a minor level, because I'm not sober and I don't abstain from drinking for religious preferences, I just don't like the way that alcohol makes me feel. My body doesn't feel great after it, and I've had some concerns with my liver and other health concerns that I choose not to. So I get excited when you tell me that there's a non-alcoholic champagne because I feel like <laughs> I feel like the default has always been the Martinelli's sparkling apple cider. Yep. Yep. <laughs> and no slam against Martinelli's. Martinelli has come through in the clutch for so many holiday gatherings for decades for me. And again, it's not that I won't have a glass of wine from time to time or a a shot of Japanese whiskey, but it's so rare. And it's interesting to me that you and I have talked offline and maybe even here on the podcast, Whitney, about the power of finding a really specific niche. And a non-alcoholic champagne that has the same look, feel, taste, sort of aesthetic experience, man, that's super niche. So I can't wait to try this. When you finally get it pointing itself, I want to try a glass of it. Well, then maybe you should plan a time because I'm not going to hesitate. I think I'm actually going to go live on TikTok for the first time. I put out a poll. This is also really cool. I mean, I am so just deeper and deeper into TikTok. Um, and actually, this will tie into a discussion that you brought up too about being distracted by social media. So we can pivot into that. But before right. we do, I will say that I also put up a post on TikTok with a poll. So similar to how you can do an Instagram with stories, you can have people vote for things. And I just asked, do you want me to go live when I get the champagne and do a live taste test? And hundreds of people voted. And it's just mind-blowing to me because unlike Instagram, I don't feel like I have like this dedicated audience on TikTok, but maybe I do a little bit more than I realized because I was blown away how many people voted and like 400 something, or maybe a little undervoted that they did want me to do a live video. And then like 100 said they didn't. But the people have spoken, the majority I will go with. And it sounds like I'll do a, a live champagne taste test. And it's a little bit of a tease for the listener of the show, because I'm sure I've already done it by the time this episode is out. However, I will have video content kind of semi-permanent on TikTok. Semi-permanent meaning pivoting to social media. Like, we never know what's going to happen with any social media and who knows like how long my TikTok account will exist, but indefinitely at this point. So to this, as a transition to talking about being distracted by social media, TikTok, I think, is one of those platforms that intimidates people that don't currently use it. 
Because it can feel very distracting, there are also concerns around the privacy side of things, although I think a lot of that has been resolved. The majority of social media platforms have privacy issues, even if we don't even know about it. And then I think the third element of hesitation around TikTok is simply just not understanding the platform and feeling intimidated or unsure about it. But I think let's focus on the distraction side of it. I will say in full transparency to anybody who does not currently use TikTok, tread lightly. If you go on there, it can be incredibly distracting. I have gone through phases of spending minimum of an hour on there, even though the videos average around 15 to 20 seconds. They can be up to 60 seconds in length. You'd think, how could you possibly spend that much time on there? But the videos are so captivating. And the algorithm is designed to focus on like educational or exciting or entertaining content. So you get pulled in and your brain is like constantly being stimulated by that experience. And I think it's really helpful for our well-beings to be very aware and mindful. We've, we've dabbled in this subject matter uh, throughout episodes on the show. So it's nothing new. The other platform that we've talked about recently is Clubhouse. And I would say I'm actually more concerned about getting distracted by Clubhouse than I am about TikTok because I've been on TikTok for over a year now. I use it as a platform for myself and I found a good balance with it. Like, I feel like it's not new and exciting anymore. So my brain's like, all right, cool. Like, I can handle this. I can limit myself. I got this covered. But Clubhouse, I haven't quite figured out an energetic flow for it yet, Jason. And I'm curious where you stand on Clubhouse as kind of a follow-up to the whole episode we did about it recently. I think I have to be super, super careful with it because now that my following is growing every single day, either close friends of ours or colleagues or acquaintances are joining, you know, so I'll open the app and I'll look at my, I suppose it's whatever the bell is, the updates tab and oh, you know, Nada joined and Danny joined and Adam joined and blah, blah, blah. And inevitably, I'll follow them. And what has started to happen is I'm starting to get invites and texts on a much more frequent basis asking me to come into rooms. And so it's giving me pause, right? Because I'm being very mindful of opening a Pandora's box in my life because I'm already feeling overwhelmed on a pretty frequent basis with everything that's already on my plate in terms of three email inboxes and all of the social platforms, you and I doing the podcast. One more thing, if it's useful and I'm finding benefit is good. But what I'm finding now is I think people are getting on, they're getting really excited, they're starting rooms and or they're scheduling rooms and they're sending me direct invites through text or saying, hey, you should check out my room. So when I go in on a daily basis and I check it, I'm seeing a lot more direct engagement with people wanting to involve me, which makes me feel good on one hand. It's like you know that, that sort of primal, yay, I'm included. You approve of me. You think that I'm valuable enough to be in your room. But it's a slippery slope because it's yet another distraction. And when I get texts from random people who aren't necessarily close friends, but they're acquaintances, and it's like, you should come to my room. And then later on that, you should come in my room. And the other day, you actually, I think at 11 at night, and I'm, I'm not besmirching you by this, but you were like, oh, you should join this room. And I'm like, I'm going to bed. And I had to put 
a very clear boundary for myself. Of, but didn't you join anyways? I swear that you got on the platform after you told me you weren't going to. I did for three minutes and then was like, don't, don't do it. So I did. Yes, I did. I ignored my own boundary. And then I felt bad about ignoring my own boundary and chastised myself and then was in bed like, you said you weren't going to do it, but you did it. So that's why I'm saying I have to be super mindful with myself wit of not giving into that kind of thing of the multiple requests throughout the day. And if someone's like at 10, 11 or midnight, like you should join this being like, no, 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 this is my wind down time. And unless it's like, you know, the ghost of Freddie Mercury coming on, I'm going to say no. Yeah. And I think social media is it's on the simple side of making that choice. Like it really is about creating those boundaries. But what's not simple is dealing with the addictive side of it. And I think it's similar to alcohol in some ways where it can take a while to disengage from something that we might literally be addicted to. And social media is another addiction. And I think that what can be helpful is that awareness, like simply taking a moment of pause and asking yourself, why do I want to open up the social media app? I think about this every single morning, actually. That's where my awareness is the highest. And I have right now this tendency to use my phone first thing in the morning. And I check in with myself about it. And I actually don't think it's detrimental for me at this point. I feel like as a whole, people always recommend like, don't use your phone. Don't look at a screen. Don't open your email or social media right when you wake up. And I think that can be true for some people and in certain circumstances. But for me, it, I think it actually, I mean, it's a little hard to say, but I'll share what I'm going to say and then I'll share like another way of looking at it. I find that it helps ease my mind to look at my phone first thing in the morning because what I really want to do is check in and see, A, is there anything urgent? Are there urgent text messages or direct messages? Are there any urgent emails? What do I have going on? What am I going to need to address? Right now in my life, I've been very good about managing my schedule and my to-do list. So I set myself up for success with that. And I wake up and I kind of ease myself into the day. Then I do some yoga or fitness, do some meditation. And that's when I actually sit down to work after all that's completed. But I still turn on my phone and look at a platform like TikTok in the morning because it also makes me feel really good, Jason. Right now, it does feel very rewarding and exciting. And I know, well, as consciously as I know from my biased perspective, that I will feel good when I open up TikTok and it will give me some sort of information. So I simply open it up just to see notifications. I don't use it usually. Maybe I'll spend a few minutes watching a few videos, but generally, I just want to see what's happening on there. And it has been this like high that I get from opening it up. And so my awareness around that, I feel like makes it more manageable is my point. And so it's not necessarily about not using these platforms. It's simply acknowledging and being honest with yourself why you're using them and if it's truly the appropriate time. Now, one other way of looking at this, though, is that maybe I am addicted to that high and maybe I am maybe addiction is not the best term here, but like I am hooked on it and it feels really good. And that's really what's driving me. And that's how the apps are designed. Anyways, they're designed to make us feel good unless we get into the comparison trap, which can also happen. And I think I could certainly benefit from maybe 
having more boundaries and being stricter with myself, but I haven't found the why for that yet, Jason. And that's, I think, part of this. Like, Generally, we're not going to change our habits unless we have a deeper why behind them or we identify with that. I'm reading the book Atomic Habits right now and the section I just finished last night, which was, was around how our identity has to be in alignment with our habits. Otherwise, our habits won't stick. So if my identity right now is somebody who really enjoys TikTok, then of course I'm going to want to use TikTok more and that's going to become a habit. If I change my identity to someone who's not that into TikTok, then it'll be easier for my habit to not include TikTok in my day, if that makes sense. And I think it actually does. Because if we look at you, Jason, you're just not that into TikTok. That really has nothing to do with your identity. You're not a TikToker and you're not really a TikTok consumer. You watch TikTok videos that people send you, but that's about it. Yeah. And I also think for me, it's different, Whitney, in terms of you getting clear on your why. I think on a fundamental level of human psychology, the great majority of human beings are not going to make a change or an alteration or a pivot in their life unless there's a lot of pain involved. Like, let's just get really real about human psychology. If things are going well, or you're getting some sort of reward and you feel good and you don't identify an issue or a pain point or an aspect of your own suffering that you're internalizing from the experience, why change? Things are going great. I'm going to make a change. Why would you do that? It's sort of like an aspect of the if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But to your point, our relationships with social media, I think, are similar but also different in certain ways in the sense that I'm super mindful that when I spend too much time, and there's not a metric, there's not an exact amount of time that I can bring up when I'm sharing this. It's just I know that if I spend, quote, too much time for myself, I start to observe that feeding my depression, feeding my anxiety, feeding my not enoughness and lack of self-worth being triggered. So my reticence to spending more time on TikTok, my reticence to spending more time on Clubhouse and really investing in those is because the value proposition isn't there for me. It could change in the future. I'm open to it changing. I'm not saying that this is my position or my perspective forever, but I've noticed that the more time I spend on social media, the worse I feel, generally speaking. So perhaps if I were to put out more content, say Whitney, like as you're doing and you're seeing the results, you're seeing the feedback, you're seeing the community engagement, you're getting that reward mechanism because let's be honest, it's dopamine for you. It just is. You're, it's, you're getting that dopamine hit as we all are. Then maybe that's enough of a reward metric that you're seeing the growth, the community and the dopamine that you're like, why would I change? For me, I'm very, very reticent to do it because I know that if I get into a dopamine feedback loop, whether that's from sugar, which was another thing on the list we mentioned from the assessments of wellness warrior training, whether that's sugar or that's processed food or that's social media time, I know that there's a point for me, for my brain chemistry, where the dividends drop off the edge of the fucking cliff and I start to feel worse about myself. So I have to be very, very careful with not only, well, with what I'm consuming, the impressions from media. TV, social media, books, paying attention to the news, and also what I'm consuming in terms of physical nourishment too, because my particular mental health challenges require me to be more mindful. And mindfulness is really the key word here. We have to check in with ourselves and decide what works best for us. And going back to that subject matter of restriction, it's really all a matter of perspective and very circumstantial. And I think it's important that when you see advice 
online. You have to see, does that resonate with you and your life and your goals? And if it doesn't, then maybe that advice isn't for you, even though it might be something that a lot of people are doing and you might be hearing a lot of advice. Like I think it's incredibly important for us to figure out what works well for us. And I think it's a good opportunity for us to pivot into the feelings that we might have of guilt about doing well. Because this came up in Wellness Warrior Training too, Jason. And I wanted to hear you elaborate more around how people are struggling with this guilt. Well, first of all, I think it's an interesting mirroring of a conversation that I had with a mutual friend and wellness colleague of ours. I had a really great conversation with her yesterday, and she was communicating to me that this exact same thing, Whitney, that she almost hesitated to tell me how well she did in 2020 and how well she's doing in her business now. And I said, why are you hesitating? She's like, well, I just, I feel kind of guilty about saying that I've done really well and my business is doing better than it's ever done because it's so much of a contrast to so many people that are suffering with unemployment and having to wait in food lines. And she was explaining to me, she's like, so on the one hand, I'm so grateful that I have this level of abundance and I'm probably going to buy a house soon and I'm doing really well and I'm thriving. But I see how many tens of millions of people are suffering and struggling every single day. And I feel a level of guilt for that too. And she almost didn't want to tell me. So to see that reflected also in, again, in the assessments from wellness warrior training and some of our students and community members, that there's this double-edged sword of, I do feel grateful that my family is healthy, we're doing well, we're thriving financially, we're still employed, or maybe in some cases, our business has done better than ever the last 12 months. But then contrast that with their level of empathy and sensitivity of looking at people, again, homeless, not able to get unemployment, waiting in food lines. And it's given me an interesting reflection of, I wonder if my sense of perceived guilt is holding me back from doing certain things because I don't want to necessarily be like, oh, Jason, look at him. He's thriving and we're all suffering. It's an interesting psychological thing of, feeling grateful and guilty at the same time. Do you find that fascinating, Whitney? Because I think that those contrasting emotions happening simultaneously is really interesting. Yeah, I do think that that's a big issue that's come up during COVID especially. And I'm sure it's been there underlining for a lot of people. I mean, you could even think about racism and privilege. Being white, people feel guilty for that sometimes because they're like, gosh, I have all this privilege and I can't even help it. It's based on the color of my skin and the way that the world operates right now. And that can lead to that feeling of guilt. I think about that often and try to find ways to change that, but also be aware that like it's very selfish to do things just to relieve our own guilt. Instead, I think like it creates a bigger impact if we maybe use our guilt as inspiration to make a change, if that makes sense. Like, okay, part of this is like selfish reasons because I don't like the feeling of guilt. But part of this is like, okay, why is the guilt there? The guilt's there because other people aren't having the same life as me. So maybe I can make a bigger impact as a result of that. And I think that can be motivating sometimes. And it is really interesting, Jason. I mean, I certainly have felt that at times too, when things are going well. Unless I'm talking to somebody else who is also experiencing the same thing, I try to tread lightly because I don't want to make assumptions about them or say something that might trigger them to feel bad. But also, I need to know that they are 
responsible for themselves and I can't control how they feel. This also reminds me of a really wonderful Instagram post that our friend and another podcast guest of ours, Leanne, posted about what her experience has been during COVID being alone. She had a roommate for some time and then she was living alone. She was dating and then was single. And she's kind of had a lot of fluctuation in terms of interaction with other people. And she described in this beautiful Instagram post how challenging that it's been and how it's actually hard for anyone who is partnered, which is a term that she used, a partnered person. It's hard to know and to relate to people that are single and alone in some capacity. And she's actually not the only person that I know who's spoken to me about this. And she also told me, Leanne, that a lot of people in the comments section of her Instagram post, which we can link to as long as it's still public, a lot of people weren't actually very understanding. For example, partnered people were commenting like, oh, I can totally relate to you. And she was like, no, you can't relate to me because you have a significant other right now or you live with someone or you have a roommate. And how it's really hard for us sometimes to understand each other if we're not in the same position. Just like I will never truly understand what it's like to have a different color skin, to be a different race, ethnicity, background, and I'm maybe even a different religion, right? Like there's only a surface level understanding I can have because that's not part of my life experience. And you can only learn so much by reading and listening and studying something. There's still a level of understanding that will truly never be there. And I'm so glad that she brought up this conversation because I think that we need to be very mindful about how we speak to one another about our experiences during this time. And we need to manage our own guilt but also manage our take responsibility for how we communicate with other people and not assume that we can relate to them, if that makes sense. Yeah, this is something I was actually thinking about last night was how friends and family members of mine who have never experienced clinical depression or suicidal ideation or I suppose type of anxiety that I have offering support in ways though they don't know what it's like. And that's difficult because I think on the one hand, there's this this deep desire for us as human beings to relate, to say, I get you, I understand. There's a connection. It's a craving for connection, really. But if you don't have a direct experience of the thing and you're trying to support, it's a slippery slope for me. Because as you said, Whitney, if you're trying to relate to someone who has a different skin color, a different religion, a different sexual orientation, their gender assignment is different, their particular cosmology, what they have chosen, who they are, or maybe they didn't, it's just their genetics and what they were born into. We can't have that deeper level of understanding, as you said. And my version of that, as you're talking about Leanne's recanting her struggle being single during the pandemic... My version of that is being depressed and suicidal during the pandemic, where people are like, oh, you know, you should do this and you should do that. I'm like, you've never fucking been through it. So why are you telling me what to do? You know, and I know it's coming from that desire to connect and like people being concerned about me and and people wanting to have that deeper level of connection, right? And keeping me safe and all those things. But 
it's very, very difficult to advise someone or say, I understand, or what about this? You should do this if you haven't been through it. And so it's a slippery slope because sometimes I'm grateful for people reaching out and sometimes I'm annoyed and want people to, you don't understand this. So just leave me alone and let me deal with it. And I think, you know, if we talk about sort of our perspectives on maybe alcoholism or sobriety, Whitney, it again is a fine line because you and I haven't struggled with that kind of addiction before. And so it's again, sort of this surface level understanding of the mechanics and dynamics of addiction without having gone through it. And I have talked to people who are sober and who've been sober for decades and asked them why. And they say, to go back to that topic, I know that if I have one drink, it's sort of metaphorically speaking, opening the floodgates. And I don't want to open the floodgates for myself. And I think that's interesting because I think if we talk about addiction, we can bring up social media because it's changing our brain chemistry. Alcohol changes our brain chemistry. And one of the big things on that list that people mentioned to go back to it really quickly is eating too much processed food and sugar, which I have definitely had a struggle with that in terms of handling my emotions around just wanting to not be in that kind of emotional pain. And if I have the <laughs> if I have the salty chocolate covered pretzel, it's salty, it's sweet, it's sugary, it's crunchy. And on that note, from a psychological perspective, it's really interesting and we'll link to this in the show notes. There's been some studies done that crunchy food and the act of crunching something with your jaw, the mechanical action Whitney of crunching down on a crunchy snack, it actually provides a sense of relief. There's something about crunching down with our jaw on something that does provide a sense of emotional relief. And I find that so interesting because when I'm emotional and I reach for something and I'm just kind of like getting to the bottom of the bag, it's usually not like pudding. It's usually something crunchy. And I do feel better for a little while afterward. It doesn't let go of the pain. It doesn't mask the pain. It doesn't eliminate the pain for me. But if I have a salty, sweet, crunchy thing, for an hour or so, I do feel better. Again, that's another thing I have to be mindful of. And with our students and community members, that's something, again, that they're struggling with because it's come up in the assessment. And I'm wondering for you, Wit, is there a particular food if you're feeling difficult emotions that you tend to flock toward? I mean, certainly chocolate plays a big role. I'm trying to think because I often experience this hormonally <laughs> certain times of my cycle. And I think I'm a little bit more lenient with myself on those days. So chocolate's definitely a big one. What else would be? I like potatoes, but it's funny how my feelings around potatoes changed a lot after doing keto for a while because I was really into potatoes for a very long time. I mean, in all forms. And a long time meaning like 10, maybe 20 years, like just like loving French fries and potato chips and baked potatoes and fried potatoes and hash brown, you know, like any form. They're very comforting food. And I think that it's a popular thing. We have it at a lot of American restaurants and European restaurants. And it's like just such a commonplace food. Maybe we just associate it with being comforted. And it was something that I think due to the carbohydrates and the oil and the salt and all these other ingredients within a potato, I'm not just talking about like a steamed potato. There's a big difference for anyone who is not low carb and really loves starches. I think potatoes are amazing. And they actually, from a body size perspective, like 
people have had very successful weight loss results, even when eating a ton of potatoes. Like, I'm not saying this is a weight comment, but for me, I guess they just weren't making me feel good aside from the emotional side of it, Jason. And that's why after doing keto, I recognized like, I only want to have potatoes occasionally. They're just not something I want anymore, if that makes sense. And I think that's one of the benefits going back to this conversation around restriction is that when you quote restrict or when you choose, which I feel is a more empowering word, when you choose not to eat certain foods for an extended period of time, you might find that you don't really even want them. And to circle back to the alcohol side of things, I had a conversation with somebody else recently who simply did an experiment of not drinking alcohol for a month or two and then recognized he doesn't even miss it. So he just doesn't drink it anymore. I don't think he's interested in drinking again because he doesn't want to get back in that habit. And to your question, Jason, like I still kind of associate potatoes with comfort food. I had some today, but I can have such a smaller portion of them and recognize like I'm comforted from that smaller amount versus I think I used to binge a little bit more because my awareness wasn't as high about what I really wanted. Chocolate, on the other hand, I still can kind of get on the bingey side of it, similar to you, Jason. I think it's not just the chocolate, it's the sugar or the other ingredients that it's combined with. And I have a hard time portion control with that. So sometimes when I'm wanting comfort food, I'll just end up eating all this chocolate and then feel like, that wasn't the wisest choice. <laughs> so my long-winded answer is also to say that I think we can find comfort in a lot smaller amounts and less frequent amounts of food. And then by bringing in some alternatives, we may find that it wasn't actually about that food that we thought it was, if that makes sense. Like potatoes, for example, maybe it was more about the oil and salt than it was about the potato. So is there something else that makes you feel good that you can put oil and salt on? Or if you're someone who's trying to avoid oil, as many people are, maybe you just wanted the fat content. So what if you ate some nuts or some high-fat food like avocado or coconut instead and realize, ooh, your body just might have been craving fat? If you want salt, maybe try a more nutrient-rich salt, like a sea salt or something that has benefits beyond the salt flavor. And then just try with a little bit of it because your body actually might be craving salt and that's why that's why you want it. So there's nothing wrong, in my opinion, by having some of it. And I think that ongoing awareness can allow us to be comforted without going to such extremes. Yeah, it's one of the things that I remember reading ago in, I think it was the first time I learned about Dan Buettner's work in the Blue Zones and his work about longevity. Shout out to Dan and Kathy Freston. If they're listening, hello. Hope you're all doing well. One of the things was that he noticed in terms of digestion and caloric restriction that people in the blue zones were not engaging in caloric restriction or fasting intentionally. They didn't say like, well, we're going to fast and we're only going to have this a certain amount of calories. He noticed though that there was a certain philosophy of not eating until you were 100% full. That in particular, the Okinawans and the Japanese centenarians that he saw there, and again, for the listener, centenarians are people who live healthfully to the age of 100 and beyond. That's who he was studying in these blue zones. And in particular, the Okinawans, he said, had a philosophy of gauging when they were about 80% full and stopping there. 
And I remember reading that wit years ago and thinking, God, I have really been in the habit, and I was in the habit for many, many years of gorging myself to the point where not just on Thanksgiving or holidays, but I would consistently just eat and eat and eat and eat and eat to the level where I felt such fatigue after a meal. And it was almost like this, this is interesting, it was almost like this scarcity consciousness of if I don't eat everything on my plate now, when am I going to get my next meal? It's sort of like my cats at feeding time. When I sit down to feed my cats and especially the ones that lived on the streets like Figaro, it's just like, I gotta eat all the food now. And I'm like, God, slow down. And then I remember back to how I used to eat. And it was very similar wit. I have to laugh about it right now because it's like I had this voraciousness. But when I read the studies that Dan Budner released and thought, oh, I'm going to start stopping and eating slower, try to eat slower and listen to my body to see like, okay, you're satiated, but you're not fully full. And honestly, that's made such a huge, I've never even really reflected on this or talked about it. It's made such a huge difference for me in not gorging myself to the point of just feeling, I don't even know, dilapidated after a meal, just like, oh, I can't do anything. And I don't miss that feeling. I will do it every once in a while. We mentioned holidays. Holidays tend to be the time where sometimes I'll default to that and just eat and eat and eat and eat and eat and feel like shit afterward. But I don't like the way that makes me feel. So it's interesting you bring that up in terms of our relationship to food. That's been a huge, huge pivot for me, is not eating myself into oblivion. (laughs) And, you know, I can relate to that as well. I remember being a kid, and I actually have this very strong memory of being at camp. I went to horse camp. (laughs) I think that was, was that the only official camp I went to? I did like a weekend camp experience with my school. They did for each grade, you got to go to this multi-night sleepaway camp with all your classmates, which was really fun. But I think aside from that, I went to a two-week long horse camp because I rode horses growing up and had a pony. It was called Pony Camp in New Hampshire. And I went to this and it was like this really kind of posh upscale camp. (laughs) Looking back, I'm like, whoa, that was quite the experience. But anyways, I have this memory of eating there because I believe that we were served food buffet style. It's such a fuzzy memory, but I remember being there and wanting to go back for seconds and like something around... It's one of those memories that like I've never really verbalized before, so I'm struggling to share this, but I just remember feeling like I wanted more. And I don't know if it was like traumatizing or maybe it was a a moment where I started to have more awareness and somehow that experience like got lodged in my brain for a time when I was thinking about wanting more food and either not being able to have it or like being able to have it and noticing, like I think I was like rushing through to eat my food so that I could go back and get more or something like that. And I don't know where that came from. It certainly didn't begin with that camp experience. I think that camp experience was like one of the times early in my life where I identified it, if it makes sense. And just that scarcity mentality of like, this food is so delicious I would really love to have more of it. And I had this habit for a while of enjoying the food so much and eating it quickly because it tasted so good. And then because I ate so fast, 
I still wanted more when I finished my plate and then felt sad that there wasn't more to have. Or I got into the habit of eating really quickly because I was anticipating that I would want more, right? Like maybe at that time, I was probably like 10 years old or something like that. I didn't realize that it takes some time for our brains to realize that we're full. So we still want more food, even though our body doesn't even need it. And so I was like in this weird habit of like, oh, I got to eat really quickly so I can go get back more because I want to have more pleasure. It's fascinating. Yeah, it is. And it's sort of like this deeper examination of what's motivating us. You mentioned pleasure. I mentioned this idea of scarcity of when is my next meal going to come? And so I better eat everything and eat as much as I can. And it's really interesting, Whitney, you brought up buffets because what flashed on me was, and this is very specific, I went to a yoga retreat 10 years ago at, uh, at Kripalu in Massachusetts, actually, and was there for, I think it was a weekend retreat. I was there for maybe four days. And in addition to yoga and meditation classes, they had this unbelievably delicious buffet with vegan food, vegetarian food, Ayurvedic food. It was so good. And I legit, Whitney, would go back for thirds and fourths. I was like a human vacuum cleaner because it was so, it was like, (laughs) it was so good I couldn't stop myself. And yet it's this really clean, really healthy food. You know, there's not nothing processed in there. It wasn't heavily salted, but you and I have an inside joke, which we're not outing about kitchery. And there's this place in Massachusetts called Deborah's that has like the best kitchery. But this kitchery and this Ayurvedic food they had at the Kripalu retreat was on par. It was so scrumptious, Whitney, that I legit, I'd get done with the yoga class. I'd be sweating my ass off in yoga, doing my pranayama, doing my meditation, and then I would just shovel this food down my gullet. And it's like, okay, is this actually healthy? You just did an hour and a half of yoga and meditation. You're in this totally zen, peaceful state. And then you walk in the lunchroom and you see this buffet and all of that zen and all of that peace is like out the window and you're just raw, just ravenous. So that contrast was so interesting. And it brings up, I think, one of the last subjects of the list I want to touch on for this episode, which was the first one that popped out at me in the assessments, which was how often the term self-sabotage came up. And I bring it up as a compliment to that idea of doing this yoga class and being in this Zen state, and then flipping to this ravenous, scarcity-minded, like, I need to eat as much food as possible. One could perceive that as self-sabotage, but what comes up for me, I remember the first framework I had around this concept was when I was in my early, early 20s, and I was singing in a band in Detroit called The Big Four, and my drummer in the band, Terry, who was older than me and the other members of the band, He was talking about his experience with being in a band that was signed to a label and touring and that whole lifestyle. And we were talking about what holds people back. And he said, I think it's self-sabotage. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, I think self-sabotage at the core is this battle in a person's psyche between fear of success and fear of failure. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. And I remember he went on to explain that people say they want success and they say they want fame and money and influence. But when they actually get there, they're terrified and they're disappointed because it's so much to manage, right? It's like, oh, you think you want to be a billionaire or you think you want to be a rock star or you think you want to be this. But when you're actually in that life, it's kind of like what Trisha Huffman 
talked about in her episode about a life without should and her experience being a audio engineer and touring with huge, huge musicians is that many of them were really unhappy and really sad, even though they had tens of millions of dollars and were touring the world. It's like the fear of success part is maybe a part of the self-sabotage of like, yeah, maybe when I get there, I'll be horrifically disappointed. And then what was all that hard work for? But then the other side of it being fear of failure of I'm not good enough. I'm a piece of shit. I failed. My dreams are dead. That was the real first explanation. That might have been when I was like 22 years old of someone explaining their perspective on self-sabotage to me. And I'm curious when I bring up that terminology, Whitney, what comes up for you when you think about self-sabotage? Well, nothing really comes up right away, to be honest, because I don't think I experience it that much in my life. And it's a fascinating thing to reflect on. Sometimes I wonder if I self-sabotage in romantic relationships. I've tried to check in with myself about that. And I don't know if I do. I think self-sabotage is tricky because a lot of it is unconscious or it's really deep down that it's hard to recognize. And we also have this tendency to be so overly critical of ourselves and believe that we're doing things like sabotaging when really we just might be in a habit that's no longer serving us. Or maybe we are just going through life and attracting certain people and together it seems like we're sabotaging. But I guess like in terms of relationships, I really believe I'm doing the best that I can and I'm following my heart and I'm learning lessons and I'm choosing people in my life that are teaching me something along the way. So it doesn't really feel like it serves me to even think of that as sabotage, if that makes sense. Like it really comes down to your definition of sabotage too, because right now I feel really fulfilled. I also have examined this in terms of income, finances. And for a long time, I was on this quest to make more money. In fact, actually, one thing I am recognizing as I'm sharing this is I wanted to change my computer password. I'm going to put a to-do for myself right now in this moment to change computer password. This is how I manage my life right now. If I write it down in my to-do list, I will do it. <laughs> Otherwise, I'll forget or I'll, it'll take me weeks. So years ago, I thought I had like this number that I wanted to achieve for my annual income. And I picked this number based on a few people, one very in particular that I admired as an entrepreneur. And she shared her income which some entrepreneurs did for a while. I don't know if any still really do. It was a big trend in the entrepreneur world. And I would look at these income reports and they would break down like where all their money came from. And I was like, oh my gosh, like I'm capable of this too. Like I see her whole strategy laid out. Like she's giving me a roadmap and if she can do it, I can do it. And I remember like sitting down and like coming up with a plan And part of that plan was that I was going to have this goal of making X amount of money a year. And if I just focused on it enough that I would get towards it. So one of the things I did was I made it my computer password. And for years, probably, gosh, like three years now, I have been typing that password into my computer every time it prompts me to. So much so that now it's like this unconscious thing that They're just like characters to me. They're not like even representing that goal anymore. And it's kind of interesting because I thought years ago that that would work. Like if I just unconsciously thinking about this number every single day that I will get it. Well, 
the truth is it didn't work that way for me. Like that strategy did not benefit me much. I think it had maybe some benefits of making me feel positive or focused or empowered, but it didn't like get me closer to that goal in the ways that I hoped it would. And I was thinking the other day that I'm ready to let go of that phrase because I don't even have that goal anymore. Like I'm just a lot looser about money. I feel more relaxed about it. Maybe it's because I'm feeling more balanced with money at this stage of my life, but I don't want to like make it such a intense experience of constantly trying to make a certain number, if that makes sense. And how this ties into the sabotage question, Jason, is that I had often wondered if I was getting in my own way financially. And truth be told, maybe I am, but I've also let go of that burden of constantly feeling like I had to do something about it all the time. I had to like constantly examine myself and like my belief systems. And I went through all these trainings around money and energy and law of attraction. I mean, I have tried so many different methods of increasing my income. And I actually found that when I just laid off it and I allowed my life to unfold and I found more gratitude wherever I was and I made ends meet however I needed to make them meet at that time, that I felt just so much better about money. And I wasn't so hard on myself asking constantly like, what block do I have? What is my financial block? That was like the constant question. How am I self-sabotaging my income? And at this point in my life, Jason, I don't know if I ever self-sabotage. I think I just haven't, that money just isn't there for me and that's okay. Like I'm fine with that. I don't need to make my life about money in that big of a way anymore. Yeah, that's a great answer, Whitney. I wanted to just share really quickly an article, very, very briefly from Psychology Today that has their clinical definition of self-sabotage. It says, behavior is said to be self-sabotaging when it creates problems in your daily life and interferes with your long-standing goals. The most common self-sabotaging behaviors include procrastination, self-medicating with drugs or alcohol, comfort eating, and forms of direct self-injury such as cutting. People aren't always aware that they're sabotaging themselves and connecting a behavior to self-defeating consequences is no guarantee that a person will disengage from it. Still, it's possible to overcome almost any form of self-sabotage. There are behavioral therapies that can aid in interrupting ingrained patterns of thought and action while strengthening deliberation and self-regulation. It's really interesting, and it's a longer article. We'll link to it again in the show notes at wellevator.com, W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. But it says, how do I know if I'm self-sabotaging? It says it can be difficult to identify self-sabotaging behavior, especially if the consequences might not immediately follow the behavior, making that connection unclear. One approach is to examine whether your behaviors are aligned with your long-term goals. If not, your behavior may be self-defeating. What are different forms of self-sabotage? Common types we mentioned include procrastination, perfectionism, negative relationships, overworking, finances, time, and change. For example, a perfectionist who wants to complete a task flawlessly may dismiss incremental improvements in their life when making even a little progress would actually help accomplish their goal. Really, really interesting. This is a longer, longer article about how to stop self-sabotaging, how to identify it, looking at personality disorders that involve it. It's a really great article. Again, for you, dear listener, 
If you want to dig into uh, all of the resources we mentioned today, you can go to our website again, wellevator.com, W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. We will link to the books. Whitney mentioned Atomic Habits. We'll link to this article from Psychology Today. And we will also link to our wellness warrior training if you would like to get involved with our programs. And on our website, you'll also see the links to our podcast here if you want to dive into this episode's show notes or any of our previous episodes. And we also have a link to some really great free resources, including some video trainings on how to create a healthier relationship with social media and three of our really most popular ebooks. We're really proud of the work we've done, and we hope it resonates with you as well. We're on all of the social media platforms, so you can find us at Wellevator. And if you want to shoot me and Whitney a direct email, we do answer all of our emails. We don't have a bot. It's Whitney and me answering the emails. It's hello at wellevator.com. So this was a good one, Whitney. This was juicy. And I kind of feel like ending on self-sabotage is a good one for me to reflect on maybe how that's showing up in my life. It's given me some extra food for thought. So with that said, we appreciate your listenership. We appreciate your support. And we will be back soon with another episode of This Might Get Uncomfortable. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.